Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. In 2005, David French was in his mid-30s. He had it all, a wife and two kids, a Harvard Law degree, and he was president of FIRE, one of the most important civil liberties groups in the country. And yet, at perhaps the worst moment of the U.S. war in Iraq, he decided to resign from his job and enlist in the U.S. Army. His reasoning was simple. He could not, in good conscience, refuse to fight in a war that he supported. He was deployed to Iraq and was later awarded a Bronze Star. Most people now know David French as a writer at National Review, but he recently announced he was leaving NR to join The Dispatch, a new media upstart co-founded by Jonah Goldberg and Steve Hayes. He joined us on this week's episode of Banter to talk about just what he, Jonah, and Steve are up to over there and how they hope to achieve it. We also talked with David about some other topics that have been on our minds recently, such as, is he optimistic about the future of conservatism in the U.S.? Who will win the Democratic primary? What does he think about Trump's impeachment? And just how close did he actually come to running for president in 2016? Folks, that was Matt Winesett. This is Max Tui. Up next, you'll hear from Max Frost. This conversation with David French was, well, in one word, enlightening. And speaking of enlightening, we have a weekly newsletter for banter. Please send us an email at banter at AEI.org if you want to be included. We've received some terrific feedback and a lot of subscribers off the podcast. So thank you for those of you that have emailed banter at AEI.org. For those of you that haven't, you are truly, dearly missing out. But what you are not missing out on is a great podcast because that's coming up right here. And without further ado, here is David French. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Miss Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. David French, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So we want to start with you are now one of the founding members, I don't know what to call it exactly, of this new venture pirate ship metaphor called the dispatch. Yes. Can you tell us what is that and uh, how come you all decided to found this? Yeah. Well, um, so the real, the real founders, I'm kind of a free agent addition. Uh, The real founders are Toby Stock, uh, Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes. And I'm a former colleague of Jonah's. He was at National Review while I was at National Review. I've long admired Steve's work. I've known of Toby by, you know, sort of glowing third-hand reports for a while. And I just really liked what they were doing. I read an early edition of the mission statement. And as I read it, I sort of had this this sense of, okay, these are are my people. (laughs) These are my people. What is the elevator pitch for the mission statement? You know, that's a great question. I I would say taking... We're we're absolutely a a collection of conservatives, um, but what we're trying to do is take a serious, press the pause button on the hot takes Mm -hmm. and take a serious and thoughtful look at the news. We're trying to zig away from clickbait when everyone is zagging towards it. And so we're going to offer on our launch on January 7th. uh, It's going to be a completely ad-free website. So you're not going to have any incentive for clickbait. Uh, It won't, you know, we're going to be subscriber driven. Um, So it's going to be a completely ad-free website, I think, as people have seen from our morning dispatch, from my newsletters, 
Some might say they're a little too long. Um, I was I was literally writing. I think I'm two thousand four hundred words into something on Me Too right now for uh, tomorrow. Uh, um, so some might say it's a little too long. But we're what we're trying to do is is help people sort through a complicated time. So obviously, any publication, any media company, their business is bringing people into the through the doors and right. to read to watch to listen whatever the media product is. Yeah. Clickbait's a natural way to. You you know, give them an incentive, tug them in there. How do you tug people into the dispatch world? Well, you know, one of the ways, I mean, so for example, Joan, let's just look at Jonah, for example. Jonah has a podcast that's incredibly popular. It's a rival podcast. We don't mention them. Rival, <laughs> rival, sort of the Crips and Bloods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, although we're like the single A affiliate of the Yankees and they're the Yankees. <laughs> that's the rivalry. Uh, and so, you know, he's got and has developed a reputation for thoughtful commentary for years and has quite literally millions of readers. Stephen, through his career, has developed a, rep a similar reputation, has quite literally millions of readers. And so what we're trying to do is say to take to communicate to those millions of people who who thank God have been reading us over these years and say, OK, all of the things that you like about what we do, we're going to conglomerate all of that into one place. Uh, and the response has been really, really gratifying so far. We launched an early opportunity to subscribe at the annual rate and had a really tremendous response to that. We even had a tremendous response to this lifetime membership thing that when I saw it, I'm not on the business side. I was like, okay, so we're launching this free with a free sign up. And the other option is a $1,500 lifetime membership. Who is going to do that? It turns out hundreds of people will do that, mm. which is pretty surprising uh, and incredibly gratifying. So uh, there's an awful lot of people who are hungry for this kind of commentary and analysis and reporting, and and uh, you know we want to give it to them. So does this give you faith in the future of the conservative movement, which right now seems to be in very dark days? Uh, <laughs> not to be too melodramatic. <laughs> um, I do not have faith in the future of the conservative movement at at all. If you were to ask me what is the conservative movement right now, I would say I don't really know. It's in a real state of flux. You know, I'm not an arc of history guy. I don't think that there's that that there is, uh, you know, the the only inevitability is God's will. And I do not know what God's will is for the, the short, medium or long term future. So uh, I don't I don't know what the conservative movement is going to look like. I do know there's an awful lot of people who share a lot of the same concerns that I have. And an awful lot of people who want to shape it in a in a very different way from the way it's going. But I think it is far from determined what that will be. David, when a lot of times Jonah, you, others, Bill Crystal, they talk about how the conservative movement separate from the Republican Party, whereas people right. sometimes view them as being interchangeable. However, it, the conservative movement, at least recently, has unquestionably been housed in the Republican sure. Party, and it's just been a big floor. It's been the lobby, and now it's kind of like, well, where do you go next? Right. You know, obviously, it's bigger than the Republican Party, but you know, it needs a home to an extent to exert influence in the country. Right. I mean, you know, for a long time, it was fair to say that the GOP was the political arm of the conservative movement. I feel like if you're going to if we're going to define our terms sort of a conservatism of legal originalism, economic freedom, international engagement, pro-life, pro-family, that kind of movement is going to it might end up having to take a page from the libertarian movement. Mm. 
which has never been housed particularly in a political party. I mean, there's the Libertarian Party, but I think if you know a lot of Libertarians, they're going to say, nah, it's not really my party. Mm -hmm. And so Libertarians, though, have been able to exert an awful lot of influence on policy and in the culture from outside of an a, a investment in a specific political party. and But with a willingness to work with anyone who will work with them. Uh, so you will see libertarians work with progressives on prison reform and win over a lot of conservatives. You'll see libertarians work with progressives on free speech issues and also with conservatives. You'll see libertarians and conservatives joined arm in arm over due process on campus as well as with some progressives. So, you know, this kind of model where you've had a set of ideas in a lot of ways have punched above their weight partially because they have not so precisely affiliated with one political party, I think could be an interesting way to look at the future. I don't do you not think it's more likely though that once Trump leaves the scene, he's so sui generis that things will just snap back to how they were? No. You don't think that'll no well so I think a ton depends on what happens in 2020. Right. America is, and I believe it, my former National Review colleague Ramesh made this point on Jonah's podcast, not to bring up the rival podcast. <laughs> yeah. but uh, Watch what you say. Well, we're going to have to cut that out, I think. Amer- <laughs> Americans are not, t- political parties don't tend to be super in love with their one-term presidents. Yeah. And they don't, they don't tend to th- believe that they're models for much of anything. So- the, there was not a huge market for Carterism after 1981. There was not a huge market for sort of George H.W. Bushism uh, after 1993. And if Trump is a one-term president, I think a lot of this will be reinterpreted as what happened over the in 2016 as, well, he ran against Hillary. Yeah. And Hillary was going to lose to almost any Republican. If he wins in 2020, then it's going to be no, 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 no. This is way beyond Hillary now. This is an absolute change in the party in much the same way that Reagan was a big change from, say, a Nixon. You couldn't see a Reagan implementing wage and price controls, for example. And so uh, a ton depends on what happens in 2020. What do you see? I mean, I know I don't want to get too much into speculating. Well, okay. Well, let's speculate. Let's speculate. <laughs> what, what do you? What podcasts are supposed to be freer? All right, exactly. let's spec. Let's speculate. Okay. Exactly. What do you see happening within the Democratic Party, and who do you think will win the election in twenty twenty? <laughs> okay. With the caveat that I, I I reserve the right to change my mind between now and the moment this podcast goes live, mm. uh, because of this this is a, in this is in a real state of flux. Yeah. Post. Post Boris Johnson shellacking of the Labor Party, I should say post shellacking of Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> a lot of people are making a, a common – they're doing a very common thing, which is trying to extrapolate that to American domestic politics, yeah. which is perilous. I think there's a – smart people make an argument that there are things that you can – lessons you can lear- learn. Andrew Sullivan has made that argument and others have made that argument. But – all political po- American politics is just politics of overreaction time and time again. So we're going to be in a phase of overreaction to Britain because that's the most immediate political stimulus <laughs> mm-hmm. that we have. So I don't I don't think that's going to help Bernie. I don't think there there is an awful lot of Democrats um, who are just really, really freaked out by the possibility that Donald Trump could win again. And it's a constituency that is underrepresented on Twitter. Yeah. I think overrepresented on Twitter is sort of the the people are going to say, 
No, I mean, we have to plow forward with the full progressive agenda. Part, part of this is the demographics of who's on Twitter. But I think if you're looking at sort of a rank and file, I mean, one of the reasons why Kamala Harris never caught on, there was some really good reporting that The Daily did, not to mention another podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, so sorry. You just want us decimated. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm, gonna, I'm just using your podcast to promote all others. Uh, where they went to South Carolina and, and they had all they're talking to black voters who were supporting Joe Biden, but going to these Harris events and they were saying, I just I don't think she can win and I want to win. And so I think that that to the extent that there is a that there is uh, an immediate term reaction to the last couple of weeks, it's going to be further trending away from an Elizabeth Warren and Bernie's support is more stable. But. Stable Bernie is still losing Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that you're going to see continued leadership by Biden, continued progress from Buttigieg. And it would not shock me if one of the more moderate candidates, there's still time for one of the other more moderate candidates to have a moment. And Amy Klobuchar is a candidate for that. Yeah. So who's going to win? Uh, if I'm laying odds, you know, the odds are still on Joe Biden, in my view. If he, if he wins Iowa... Watch out. I've been saying this since the get-go. Frost has been very skeptical of me, but I, I think Biden definitely still has it. Is it too – I mean, it seems to me that we should extrapolate from Britain, though. I mean, in one way, Corbyn was a anti-West, very socialist person that got shellacked. Maybe maybe we can learn from that that Bernie and uh, perhaps Warren are not going to do as well. And it also seems that Boris has forged a new coalition of more working-class populist conservatism that could definitely appeal – I mean, people thought that was the promise of Trump. People thought Trump would come yeah. in, pass a huge infrastructure bill, and realign American politics. So I'm going to agree and disagree with that. I'm going to agree on the point that you did see in, in Britain a realignment that is a, very similar to what's occurring in the U.S., and that is with working class white voters absolutely have started to turn their back on labor. You saw that in some of these areas in, in uh, you know, outside of London that had never really even given the Conservative Party a chance. And they were, they, you know, they, some of these constituencies hadn't voted anything but labor for decades. And they shared in common this characteristic of being more working class communities. So I think that that translates. And I think there, there's a lot of that the, the progressive party in the U.S., the Democrats, have many of the same problems that the progressive party in the UK does in that it has a really specific appeal to a certain kind of urban, highly educated young voter. It has a hammerlock on certain on on cities and it's up for grabs out out of there. And and a lot of the things that give it a hammerlock in these urban progressive centers make it less palatable mm-hmm. everywhere else. And so I do think that there is a dynamic there, but there is a big difference in America in American populism that doesn't translate as much in Britain, and that is race. Mm. The United States is a much more racially diverse country, and populist, right-wing populism in the U.S. is laced throughout history with racism, especially in the South. And so it is very hard to go into an American body politic as a populist and build a multiracial populist working class coalition because that is there is it that is laden with history yeah laden with history and with the present reality and and so there's just a 
a different challenge. One of the things I've pointed out many times is on the one hand, on this very surface level, if you look at working class white Americans, they have a lot in common in sort of their worldview with black Democrats. Black Democrats are going are more church going, more church going. Um, black Democrats tend to be economically progressive and culturally relatively conservative. And so you would think, well, there's sort of a natural marriage there, right? Uh, think of like the first the first 90 percent of the uh, legendary Tom Hanks Black Jeopardy skit. I yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to bring until that up. the end when they until say until the end lives that matter is the final Jeopardy question. I think. Yeah, and there's those, those moments where you, like, oh, it host. was fun. It was, <laughs> it was fun. fun. Fun while it lasted. But y- you know, I think what you're talking about is so you brought up the religious similarity. Mm-hmm. There's also you know the skepticism of the system. The system yep. being against you. There's yep. a animosity towards elites a lot of it justified and right now with that sentiment you know obviously the story in dc although it should be much bigger than it is is the impeachment situation and it is you know peggy noonan nailed it in an article this week i don't know if you read it but it was who can beat trump and it starts off with she's in iowa right now and she's saying nobody's asking about impeachment they're asking about meaningful policy problems related to their lives and w- impeachment you know question aside of whether it's fair whether you think he should be mm-hmm. impeached let's talk about the political implications and the voter implications it just seems like it's out of touch with these people they i mean i i don't know if it's as much out of touch as just foreordained so what's their what's the controversy at this point and people when i talk to people so i'm in in the middle of trump country he's going to be impeached and he's going to be acquitted Yeah. We just know. Just go ahead and do it. It's sort of like, get this over with. No, I would agree with you. It's downstream from where they really are. It would not be downstream if it was considered a live possibility. Okay. So that's one thing that's Mm -hmm. making it not as fiery and huge as it otherwise would be. It's just not going to happen. It feels so much like a repeat of 98. It's just flipping around the characters. And so you have sort of the you know, a Republican base that would not tolerate anything but an impeachment of Bill Clinton. You have an obsession by the media, the elite media, with the impeachment. You have a Democratic coalition that was, you know, had a lot of and more than they let on publicly discomfort with presidential conduct. Um, But they weren't going to let the Newt Gingrich Republican Party win any darn thing. And we went through this whole movie in 98, and I can remember as a Republican looking at the Democrats and going, you people, (laughs) you people, you have talked a great game about respecting women. Didn't we just go through this whole thing with Clarence Thomas? What is wrong with you? And then I remember, and this is sort of like, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. And years later, I was, and I had just sort of lived in the status of righteous indignation. What on, you know, you pile of hypocrites. We were right, you were wrong. And then I thought, you know, I I honestly wonder what would the GOP would do well. if their president was caught in a situation that it would cost them their president. 
What? And I just thought, oh, I just hope we're not tested like that. Don't have to wonder. Be careful what you're doing. Do you think – well, so now people – I mean, maybe this is all just convenient post-facto rationalization. But now you get some Democrats saying, oh, yeah, we definitely should have impeached Bill Clinton back in the day. Oh, that's all convenient. OK. Yeah. So, you, but I mean, do you think there's a chance that in 15 years the Republicans look back and think, oh, we definitely should have removed President Trump. Oh. We could just have Pence instead. 20 years from now, there's going to be 20, 25, 30, whatever. There's going to be a Democratic president who does something really bad that is pretty darn indefensible on the actual known merits uh, and I'm not talking about the the hypothetical surrounding what Trump did or the the spins, but what we know about the facts, pretty darn indefensible. And a Democrat's going to do it, and the Republicans are going to sally forth, and there's going to be some of the same people in the Republican Party who are there now defending him from impeachment. And all of this tape will run, all of this, and then you'll have a few kind of sheepishly saying, like a Democrat said to me at a dinner table not long ago, he said... I wish I'd taken the stance you're taking right now, David. Yeah. And he said, I don't even feel – I feel like I can't even raise my voice that much publicly right now about Trump because I sat in rooms where people were expressing fury at Bill Clinton but would never do that publicly, never do that publicly. And that is the dynamic right now in the GOP. I want to – not to switch topics too much, but – but the switch topics are totally. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, what are your thoughts on identity politics, cancel culture, this whole kind of social justice aspect of the Democratic Party? Do you think that that is the main thing that's holding them back from beating Trump? I would say to an extent, I'm hearing like progressive critics in my ears. And here's what progressive critics to that question would say. Tui, stop whispering in his ear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that's. <laughs> yeah. Which would all politics to some degree is identity politics, is coalition building, et cetera. And I get that point. I get that point. But I would say this. I would say you combine coalition building around ethnicity with extreme intolerance for dissent. And you have what we would call cancel culture. You have the the kind of Twitter gang tackling, the uh, intolerance for the rapid movement of social ideas accompanied by total intolerance for anyone who disagrees with a position that you yourself might have had 18 months ago. There, That is a dynamic that exists. And I think progressives who – there are a lot of progressives who won't just look that in the face and acknowledge it. And then there's a lot of smart progressives who are seeing it. Uh, so, for example, if you look at Heterodox Academy, which is this movement established by Jonathan Hyde and others, most of those people in Heterodox Academy are not conservatives. Of these thousands of academics who are concerned about what's happening in the academy, these are not conservatives. They are people who say, look, this combination of a focus on, say, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation to the exclusion of all else combined with intolerance for dissent is creating what is a repulsive political movement to an awful lot of people. And I think that's just a fact. In the bizarre part, and here's the thing, I'm not the American voter of today, the swing voter. I'm not burdened with student debt. I'm not fighting for healthcare bills. I'm not, you know, a lot of the big issues that are burdening the average American voter don't affect me. But I'll tell you what, myself and a lot of peers, 
who are in that sort of middle category, the identity politics is just so viscerally revolting to us. And I, you know, especially when it's stuff like Kevin Hart not being able to host the Oscars. It's absurd. like once they're, it, they're attacking absurd. their own at this point. It's absurd. And and it's just so stupid. It's it's like a, it's a weird combination of injustice and stupidity. And I'm not sure which is more frustrating. Well, you know, I like the way um, David Brooks put it. The less exhausting side is probably going to win in 2020. Hmm. The less who who is it that is less repulsive? <laughs> and and look this and 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 you can somebody can t- talk to me all day long and say my heart is pure in wanting to end racism, to stop discrimination against trans people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the way in which that manifests itself. With this extraordinary intolerance, a willingness to destroy people's lives and careers for comments made years ago, years ago, this absolute lack of grace in public, any total lack of forgiveness, that's it's exhausting and it's repulsive. It is. And and look, some of the, you know, what's the statement? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. At some point, the purity of your heart should reflect itself in the virtue of your movement. And there's a huge disconnect between a lot of the people on the left who could pass a lie detector test right here, right now about the purity of their motives that they really want to make America a more compassionate, accepting place to historically oppressed communities. But the lack of virtue in their movement is a completely, and, and I can hear a lot of people saying, well, physician, heal thyself. GOP. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also hearing the progressive critics in my own ear now because one of the immediate rebuttals is what was the Trump 2016 campaign if not a gigantic white identity politics Which, campaign? Which, I mean, look, you know, this is um, uh, heroes are hard to find mm-hmm. in this time. I mean, look, the, the, the fact that Steve Bannon said out loud that he wanted Breitbart to be the platform for the alt-right – is vile. Yeah. And and look, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard this phrase, horseshoe theory. Mm-hmm. Horseshoe theory. I guarantee you, the far MAGA right is every bit as snowflakey triggered, Twitter stalking, and malicious as the wokest of the woke social justice brigades. I mean, there are people right now who are, who their favorite thing to do, it seems, is if anything, if there's any news development that vindicates anything about Trump, what do they do? They begin the Twitter hunt, the tweet hunt. I'm going to find your bad tweet from 2015 or 2016 when there were partial facts. Now that we know more facts in 2019, and I'm going to hold you up for a ridicule and say there has to be a reckoning for you. And and it's it's a complete, it's a mirror image of what we see. And everything from the snowflaking the triggering, the gang tackling, a lot, the virtue signaling. We don't need to get into drag queen story hour too much, but an enormous amount of this was pure virtue signaling, unconnected to any sort of real world action of any import at all. So, I did want to ask, sorry, Max, since you brought up drag queen story hour, are, are, are you, have you stopped being so polite now? Because Saurabh Armani says that's the problem with modern conservatism. <laughs> uh, the David Frenchism is the, the biggest issue. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the funny thing is, is, so I've been a litigator for years and years and years. I've, I've had my last trial in 2014, my last case in 2015. I wrote a brief, two Supreme Court briefs in 2018. But so I, it's been 
maybe a full year with like zero litigation for the first time since 1994. Mm-hmm. So I've litigated a ton. I've led litigation teams, sued a, just a pile of universities. And it was funny when all that against David Frenchism stuff came out. I was actually here in D.C. meeting with sort of a kind of impromptu reunion of the legal team that I had at Alliance Defending Freedom. And they were like, uh, this is a little unrecognizable to us. <laughs> uh, it was especially unrecognizable to my wife. But, um, yeah, it was it was weird because I believe in treating people the way I would like to be treated. I believe in treating people with kindness I don't think any of that is incompatible with fighting hard for your values and fighting hard for your convictions. In fact, I know it's not incompatible, but it's also sort of weird to be held up as some sort of paragon of politeness when I'm I'm a flawed person and I don't always live up to that. So, you know, it's kind of weird to think, uh, is am I somehow uh, transgressing? Am I somehow violating the trust of my readers if they ever catch me doing some sort of like juvenile tweet. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're also not some milquetoast both sides pundit. Like you're right. pretty obviously you a conservative writer. You don't attack the opposition with the pitchfork. Have a good argument. That's what yeah. you do. I mean, if that's polite, then sorry. Yeah, you, know? you just make you make it about ideas. Right. You fight over the ideas and you remind, uh, you know, it was it Chesterton who said, be kind, everyone faces a hard battle. You know, I'm often interacting with people on the other side of a microphone or in the other side of a courtroom that are, you know, in many other areas of their life, we might be in real alignment or even if we're not, they're still a human being created in the image of God. And I'm under a biblical mandate to treat them with kindness. It is not a tactic. That's not it's not like if you read scripture as a believing Christian, it says, be kind Unless the libs need to be owned. <laughs> yeah, the, the Gospel of John is not the sequel to Sun Tzu's Art of War. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and again, none of that, and that's the message I've tried to convey a million times, none of that is incompatible with defending the First Amendment or f- defending due process. Well, okay, so I, there's really two questions I would, I would love to ask. Yeah, go for it. for it. First, so you said heroes are hard to find. Back in 2016, your name was floated <laughs> as a potential hero to be a third candidate in the election. Did you ever actually consider that? I came closer to doing it than reason would suggest that I should. Mm. (laughs) Um, I almost did it. I I, I literally, I almost did it. And as those words come out of my mouth, it almost sounds like, what? You know, what are are you thinking? I mean, you, as someone said, when my name was first floated, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. (laughs) As if that- Now you have a nice Wikipedia entry. It's fine. Yeah, it's (laughs) nice. But the, um, but I almost did. And, and this came right after Mitt Romney had said no. This had came right after other people who had these big national platforms had said no. This was before the Republican convention. This was before Paul Ryan had endorsed this was before a lot of a lot of Republican money was on the sidelines, and there was a theory of the case that went something like a person who's an actual outsider, a person who's a post-9-11 vet, a person who can appeal to the younger voters in the GOP who are most disaffected from Trump, has an opportunity to raise money, get on ballots, and get on the debate stage. And if you can get on the debate stage, anything can happen. And That was sort of the theory of the case. Um, And as we were sort of walking through it and thinking through it, several things happened. Paul Ryan endorsed um, the 
GOP money just sort of stampeded into the Trump world. And I realized just sort of looking at it in the most brass tacks, I talked to uh, uh, someone who I know wishes to remain nameless, but a very uh, important GOP figure in this time period. And he said to me, David, all I'm going to tell you is do not pay attention to a single pledge of money. Hmm. Only pay attention to money. (laughs) If you're talking about thinking about what kind of resources you'd have to run. And I began to realize that I would have the kind of resources that could launch a decent congressional campaign, but not a presidential campaign. And that's where the fact that I don't didn't have a Wikipedia entry that I what, you know, that there was a, a fair critique that how do you get known to 300 million people? And and the answer was you don't. Yeah. Uh, and so at, at the end of the day, I looked at it and I said, in spite of the fact that I wish someone would challenge both Trump and Hillary, I believe someone should challenge Trump and Hillary. I don't believe I'm the right person to do it. Too bad. You, had, you, may, you may have had a couple votes in this room. I, well, you know, <laughs> where, do you remember that scene from uh, Arrested Development where Tobias Funke stands up at one point? And there are dozens, there, dozens of us. Dozens, I say. <laughs> yeah, that's as I go around the country, I find out that there are dozens. We, we would have had a movement of dozens. Uh, legions of dozens. <laughs> legions of dozens that have been magnificent. So do, do we have time for one? Yeah, final question. Yeah. One more. So as, as you just mentioned, you're a veteran. You went to Iraq in mm-hmm. 2007. What made you, I mean, you were a Harvard-educated lawyer. So what made you do that? Uh-huh. And how did that change your view of America? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing, so I was president of FIRE at the time. I was an older guy. I was, uh, so this is 05 uh, when I considered joining. So it's 36 years old. Um, I'd just seen a news story that said that the Army was having trouble recruiting because this is the worst days of the Iraq War, 05 before the surge, height of the Iraqi Civil War. And... Uh, they're having trouble recruiting. And and I got uh, angry. I got upset. And I said to my wife, America is too soft to fight a long war. And then I saw another article right after that that talked about a Marine major, I believe, roughly my age, who was wounded in the Anbar province. And the article noted that he uh, borrowed a, a re- embedded reporter's satellite phone to call his wife and daughters while he was being medevaced to say, I've been hurt, but I'll be okay. And I was just struck in that moment, like this guy doesn't love his wife and kids less than I love my wife and kids. In fact, the fact that he's laying his life down on, you know, on the line for them indicates an immense amount of love. And what am I doing? I've got this great life. I'm running a civil liberties organization. I love it. I love my job. Um, I love what I get to do. But at the same time, I supported this war and I'm not in it. And I just felt this conviction, this just burning conviction that I had to do this. And so after talking it over with Nancy, uh, I went down to uh, the the recruiting office in downtown Philly, which is used to getting kids out of high school. Yeah. <laughs> I walk in and I was not the ninja figure you see before you <laughs> right now. I, had, I hadn't worked out probably in three years. Uh, I was about 25 pounds heavier, all in my gut. So, like, I was a, I was not a Chris Kyle, cutting a Chris Kyle sort of figure. <laughs> and I said I wanted to join, and I wanted to be a JAG officer, and they had no idea what to do with me. I, wow. All they knew how to do was get me an Army physical, which I passed by the skin of my teeth. And then uh, I 
got in shape and I f- Googled how to become a JAG officer. What is a JAG? What do they do? So uh, lots of different things. It's an army, you know, term for army lawyer. Uh, the ch- TV show JAG is not a documentary, <laughs> but it is. So essentially when I was when I was in Iraq, I did three things mainly. I did detainee operations. I ran our detainee operations. I did rules of engagement, which is do we bomb? Do we don't bomb? Do we shoot? Do we not shoot? And then uh, military justice. Uh, so classic, you know, soldiers do bad things and responding to that. And so and then I had sort of a another aspect of it, which was uh, uh, unique to my deployment, which was my commanding officer had seen that I had political experience in my civilian life. And so he wanted me to help him on tribal relations because that meant I knew politics. <laughs> and I said, I think they're different. And he goes, well, you know more any, than anyone else here. And <laughs> and so I said, I, I, I don't know if that's right. Were but tribal relations better in Iraq than they are here? <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go that far. <laughs> uh, we, we're, we, are, well. we have a lot fewer beheadings. Let's just say that. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on. This was a terrific conversation, and we can't wait to put it out there. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, David French has just left the building. As a reminder, if you liked this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes and leave a comment while you're there as well. We've gotten plenty over the last couple of weeks. We usually read them out, but we have quite a backlog right now. We do want to mention one comment, though, we got from Ricochet on the Andrew Sullivan episode. It's a man named Henry saying how he enjoyed the episode, enjoyed the interview, despite not agreeing with everything Sullivan says. However, he wishes we pushed back more on Andrew's point about how Obama was a moderate to even possibly conservative president. Henry, I agree with you completely on that. We should have pushed back more. What I would have liked to say is the only reason he looks moderate now is because the Democratic Party shifted so far to the left, where you have actual socialists kind of at the forefront of the party. But in 2008, Obama was by no means a conservative, probably not even a moderate, more a progressive liberal. Yeah, I mean, every year the NFL passing yards record seems to get broken. And maybe right now 3,500 yards in 2006 doesn't look like a lot. But back then it was a lot. By the way, I know he became president in 2008. This is just for the sake of NFL accuracy. I don't know if I like this metaphor because that means that in 2022, maybe we'll look back and think, oh, you know, Bernie and AOC were not all that progressive. Are we just on a a one-way track where we get more and more lefty as the years go on? Well, I think progressive is more relative than liberal is. I think liberal has some core principles, core ideals, whereas progressive is how you compare to your time in terms of what you're advancing. That's a good point. Well, I mean, the question is, what is driving this upsurge in socialism among the youth and among the country more broadly? And what and what can be done to fix it? I mean, I mean, is this just like in vogue and there's always going to be people, people clamoring for more government? That was part of Paul Ryan's point, which was interesting is it was so culturally promoted socialism and it's cool right now. But I think it's more – I think a lot of it has to do with – People seeing the downsides, the ugly underbelly of the commercial era and seeing what happened in 2008 and seeing what happens when greed gets the best of capitalism. And I think that's one thing I got to say we do well here at AEI is talk about when capitalism oversteps its boundaries and how to regulate itself. Don't get rid of it. You know, tweak it. I was in Mexico for the last two weeks and met a lot of British people there, lots of Brits vacationing in Mexico. And over and over again, Including I got Boris. Was Boris there? Boris was he, not. Well, he Boris is in the Caribbean right now. Corbin. Oh, is he? Yeah. Corbin has a lot of free time these Cor- days. Corbin can go over there and hang out with uh, 
Evo Morales. From <laughs> I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd probably be worried about taking an ice pick to the head. I went to Trotsky's house when I was there. Really? Really? Yeah, in Mexico. How was that? It was cool. It was cool. I mean, every, all the signs were in Spanish, and like, Spanish <laughs> is very. That sounds subpar. like Miami. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what happened to Trotsky? He was yeah. in exile, hiding from Stalin in Mexico, living in this compound in Mexico City. And they sent an assassin after him, Spanish assassin, who came and killed him with an ice pick mm-hmm. to the forehead. Really? Smashed his head in, in his own study in his house while he's writing a book. It's why Corbin will never go. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, by the way, next time you can share a story or two from your time in Mexico. You know, I'm looking forward to it. Stay tuned next week. We're going to have Max Frost story time. I've got some interesting- With Spanish subtitles. Spanish subtitles. Hablamos español muy bien aquí. Muy bien. Porque tenemos oyentes que hablan español Y somos muy multiculturales. So stay tuned for the Nuevo Especial, where we'll speak solamente in Espanol. No me gusta the two of you right now. All right, we have a new segment coming up now, So Crazy It Just Might Work, where we talk about, we all pitch some policy ideas that might sound a little out there on the surface, but you dig in and they are better than any policy white papers any rival think tank ever puts out. And then we go around the table and we rate them one to ten. Match Tui, you go first. Well, first of all, Max Frost set a new scale last week because you got a negative one. <laughs> so you're at it's That's negative one to ten. Fake thanks news. to your bad ideas. Okay, <laughs> okay. So here's my idea: we raise taxes on the wealthy. Okay, <gasps> and however, the, here's the twist: the wealthy get to decide where that money goes. So first of all, I'd like to say this: Do I, out of principle, believe that taxes should go up on the wealthy? You know, I do not right now. But we're in such a position where this is inevitable. And so the way to beat it is to say, well, let's allow for some liberty. Let's be democratic about it. It should be like a GoFundMe government system where every additional dollar you pay from raised taxes, you get to choose where it goes. Is it going to Puerto Rico? Is it going to Social Security? Is it going to the military? Is it going to social welfare programs? Wherever it's going, you have a say. And all of a sudden, this is democratic. It's thoroughly pro-liberty and all right anyone in this room raise your hand if you would voluntarily send your tax dollars to puerto rico (laughs) oh my anyone well wait till wait for for my idea and that might become a reality to i gotta rate this uh only two stars because here's why why should the rich get to decide where their tax money goes but not the not everybody else why can't i choose that i want to send all my money to the space force well the the whole point of this i give it i give it a 1.3 tops because the whole idea of this is saying, look, we don't even need the money. We're just going to take it because you're rich. You can decide where it goes. But you're not saying we're going to use it to fund something. We're just saying we're going to take your money because you're rich, and then you can choose where it goes. Yeah. Well, by the way, I'm just being realistic here because you guys are going to be, well, they raised taxes and we don't know what to do. And now it's go- – look, this is the way – this is the compromise. Obviously, it's not perfect. And 1.3 why, – I mean, his scale is ridiculous, by the way. Yeah, let's keep it to just uh, numerals or uh, integrals. I mean, no decimals here. I'm going to get into some irrational numbers pretty soon. You're up, Wine. So. All right, my idea. That'll go well with your irrational opinions. <laughs> Answer me this, guys. When- Put in the laugh track. All right, sorry. When people talk about this country being great, what decade do they usually refer to? 1980s. Before that. 1950s. Exactly. When was Mad Men out? The 19- or when was that? Of- what was that about? The 1950s. One more question. When was the last time a state was accepted into the union? 1950s. Hawaii, 1959. We need to go on an aggressive campaign of state expansion. We've got to bring Puerto Rico into being a state. Perhaps Guam should become a state. 
Greenland, 100% should be a state. Possibly Quebec. Maybe other areas of the Caribbean. There's some islands out in the Pacific, I'm sure, that would love to join. All of this could be totally democratic. We take plebiscites in all these places. If over 50% want to become a state, let them become a state. And it's imperialism with with a soft face. <laughs> it's imperialism. So we've got an imperialist and a big government thief on my right and my left. A pro-liberty genius. A, pro-demo- a, a, a pro-democracy imperialist. pro-democracy genius. Okay, besides the idea of being great, why would we ever want this? A national glory. I'll tell you this. I actually am giving this, this is banter history right here, the first ever 10. I'm giving this a 10. (laughs) And you want to know why? This country hasn't had a true frontier since Lewis and Clark. And as you said, we haven't grown in over 60 years, which by the way, or 60 years on the dot, that is the longest gap of not adding territory in our nation's history. We have a feeling of we're ripe and rotting. We need the idea of we're green and growing, and the only way to do that is by adding territory. Exactly. And one more question. If we did not have 50 states right now, do you think there would be such strong opposition to adding new ones? Because right now, we've got 50 stars on the flag, 50 is a nice round number, 100 senators, but it's when you think about it, it's totally arbitrary. Betsy you Ross want, lost her trademark. Do you, you want D.C. to become a state? No. I, I would like to say one thing. A lot of people are, well, this is cruel, heartless, cold. Guys... American quality of life and our resources, we're going to help out a lot of people. Okay, so are we doing it for ourselves or are we doing it for them? We're doing it. And why would would anyone anyone in Quebec ever want to join the United States? We're not adding Quebec. (laughs) That's what he just said. I said maybe. Quebec is a bit. Maybe we're This man is off his rocker. I give it a zero. Greenland. You have the worst rating system. He wants to give away states. I heard him pitching that. No, he never pitched that, but he probably does want to give away. Yeah, there's a couple. Greatest state in the country. He eats Florida. I love Florida. Look, we are a decadent society and we got to revive our sense of worth somehow. And adding states, when people <laughs> want to join us and we want to bring them in, it's a win-win for everybody as far as After all, expanding empires endlessly is always a path to success. So let's not do that. I'm up next. My idea, unlike these two radical lefties I'm sitting with, Unbelievable. is... Didn't, didn't know there was imperialists among the radical left. Oh, my God. Have you ever read Karl Marx? <laughs> it's My idea is simple. Where does everybody move to? Where is everybody moving? Where do they retire to? Florida. Tennessee. Nashville. Who do you know retiring to Tennessee? Lots of people. <laughs> Lots of people. All right. Sure. South Carolina. How many people retire down to South Carolina? Tons of people. Why? No state income tax. Nice weather. Nice weather. No state income tax. Why do these states, which are increasingly prosperous, where everybody wants to move, they have no state income tax. Meanwhile, the states that they're leaving, Illinois, New York, and elsewhere, have absurd levels of state income tax. States should not implement state income taxes. They're not going to do it voluntarily because they just tax and spend, tax and spend with no incentive to stop it. And then they can pin it on the federal government. You know, you know. I will say this. This is my one concern. By the way, Florida's the greatest state in the country. That's where I'm from. It's a great state. So I, I do get that. I mean, I'm totally pro. Let's imitate Florida. Here's my concern. If we right now have a problem of too much going to D.C., too much decision making, too much. Is Florida any more dependent on D.C. than New York? No, but exactly. I would say that your message, this does matter, long-term messaging is that all this should be done, you know, your money goes to Uncle Sam. There's no sort of civic responsibility, civic engagement with the capital of your home state. We need more action on the state level. Dude, if you're, I'm from upstate New York. Yeah. 
where the capital is Albany, which is completely owned by New York City. And the, the other issue with this is that in cities that have big distortions in their population, like New York, we have New York City and everything else, or Illinois, we have Chicago and everything else. You have urban elites in the one city who are dictating policy and spending priorities and everything for the capital elsewhere, either Albany or Springfield or whatever. And then everybody in the rest of the country suffers for it. That makes no sense. I have a problem with elite cities. That's another question, though. But, you know, if you're talking about how to get people to move to your state and you're in New York. This is how. It's, I mean, taxes is a big consideration, but I think people don't want to retire in depressing towns. And so I think if there's any other way to get an economic revival. Did Boeing set up their new factory in South Carolina because the weather is nice? I see the point. I don't even know if this is a very crazy idea, which is why I'm still ranking it. I'll give you 1.2 stars, even worse than you gave someone else so in this room. you're getting low marks on the so crazy portion, but you're doing great on the it just might work. Well, I mean, it might work because we already know it's working. So why aren't more states doing it? Because, because they have their own vested interests and the money that's coming in and they keep spending. Well, I mean, if the state, So it is crazy. If the, if the idea that New York State would get rid of a state income tax is ludicrous. They would never do it. No, what we should do, and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act put us on this path, is get rid of the state and local tax deduction where states have incentives to rot, to raise taxes as much as they want because then their constituents can write it off and deduct it from their federal Wait, tax. No, get rid of the SALT deduction. That way that way, residents of states know where their tax money is going and how much they're paying, and they can move to states that have higher taxes and provide more services or lower taxes and provide fewer services. I mean, in a dream world, that's how it works. However, many states, there's higher taxes and fewer services. So where's your money going? It's going nowhere. Well, then you can move. All right. Psh, see ya. Well, by New York... Banter fans, if you have any so crazy just might work ideas, comment them on iTunes, send them to us at banterdai.org. We'll feature any ones that catch our eye. I mean, if they're good, if they're if they're better than a three, if, aka if they're better than any of Frost's ideas, <laughs> send them in and we'd love to talk about them on the show. And meanwhile, make sure you rate us, leave five-star reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. And most importantly... Send us an email, banter at AEI.org. We officially have a mailing list. We've gotten some tremendous feedback. We've already heard from some of you guys to get on the list. Send us an email. We've got great jokes. We've got great analysis. Great photos. Great photos. Get to know your hosts. Send us an email, banter at AEI.org. Don't be shy. I think everybody has this idea that because... It's not an individual's email address that nobody reads it. We, who do you think reads it? We all read it. It's basically sending an email to all three of us, and we hope to have you on the newsletter. It's great. We want this engagement. We think policy, idea, discussion, dialogue is critical going forward, and we want you to be a part of it. So send us an email, banter at AEI.org, comment, let us know who you went on, and we'll be happy to try and do that. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. We look forward to talking with you next week.